Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to episode number 1017 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. In fact, the librarian occasionally selects a review to read on the show. So, if you submit a five-star rating and write a review of the show in iTunes, there's a good chance the librarian might share yours on the show in the near future. Like he does today. Hello, kiddies. This is your librarian, and I wanted to share with you a nice review that we got on iTunes from The K-Divine. Top-notch audio anthology of horror. Couldn't have said it better myself, K-Divine. Do you want new stories of horror from Minds Creating today? Look no further than here. Stop and listen, and don't be too afraid to shiver. (laughs) Excellent audio quality and craft from the writers. I love the library. Well, the K-Divine, the library loves you right back. Keep those reviews coming, kiddies. Who knows? Maybe I'll read them on the air one of these days. (laughs) Toodles! The librarian says the perfect gift to scare your friends and family, or even someone you don't like very much, comes in the form of a copy of our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available on Amazon in print and Kindle. Or why not skip the milk and cookies this year and leave Santa something wicked fun to read instead? Grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, and the book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get wicked today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. We've had several new supporters sign up on Patreon, and we all deeply thank you. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark tale by an author new to the halls of the Wicked Library, but certainly no stranger to our sister show, Victoria's Lift. We're proud to introduce you to Barbara Jean Savoie, who wrote today's tale, told by Mary Murphy and scored by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. If you've ever been on a long road trip and just wanted to get off the road and check into a hotel with a hot shower and a comfy bed, you'll understand how Jenny feels when she finds what she hopes is the perfect place to wait out a thunderstorm. Just hope the hotel you find isn't Hotel Rosella. Chapter 
Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> The lines dividing the highway have long since faded. Some bleached asphalt stretches on in a straight line for miles before shrinking into a fine point and disappearing just over the horizon. Just ahead, the sky darkens, obscured by heavy clouds a color of bruises, gray, black, purple, and green. With a mounting sense of dread, I swipe at the GPS, only for it to confirm what I already know. There isn't a turnoff for miles and miles. My only choice is to turn around, get caught in the storm going back in the direction I came, or to keep driving, straight into the heart of it. Clenching my hands around the steering wheel, I curse at the cheery blonde meteorologist on the television this morning who promised clear skies. Then I curse at myself for being too much of a fraidy cat to get on a plane. I could already be sipping margaritas with my best friend, sitting back and relaxing on our well-earned vacation. But no, I had to insist on driving cross-country because I thought it would be safer. And now, here I am, in the middle of nowhere, driving into a thunderstorm. It's almost like something out of one of my nightmares. A heavy raindrop splatters across my windshield. I switch on the wipers just as a second and third raindrop thud against the glass. I reduce my speed and try not to whimper as thunder booms overhead. More rain falls, and I slow the car even further. To just 20 miles per hour, I crawl along barely able to see the road through the downpour. Thunder cracks, and I shrink down in my seat, my shoulders pressing into my ears. Come on, Jenny, I say. Everything's all right. We just have to get through one little storm. One teeny, tiny, itty-bitty storm. That's all. Everything will be fine just as long as we keep driving. Just think about sand and the surf and tropical drinks with little umbrellas in them. Do not think about thunder or lightning or tornadoes or... <sighs> my breath catches in my throat as I imagine the storm clouds circling overhead, as I imagine a funnel descending on the horizon. In my mind, I see myself wrenching at the steering wheel, spinning the car around. I watch as I press the accelerator to the floor. In my mind, the tires squeal against wet pavement, going nowhere at first. But then the tread catches, and I'm pressed into my seat as the car rockets forward. I watch as the speedometer climbs higher and higher. But the tornado is too fast. Too fast. It's barreling toward me, and suddenly my car is thrown into the air and... Stop it! I hiss. Don't do that. You know you're not supposed to do that. Everything is fine. Everything is completely and totally fine. I take a deep, unsteady breath and let it out again. My heart pounds against my chest, and I release one white-knuckled hand from the steering wheel so that I can press it over my heart, urging it and myself to calm down. Lightning flashes illuminating in the brief moment when the wipers clear the windshield, a large rectangular structure, a building, way out in the middle of nowhere? I peer through the onslaught. 
leaning so far over my steering wheel that my nose is nearly pressed to the rain-chilled glass of the windshield. Up ahead, on the right-hand side of the highway, stands a building. Light shines from several of the windows, each square of light acting as a beacon in the dark of the storm. In front of the building, sitting on top of a long pole, is a sign, but the words are impossible to read through the pouring rain. I bite my lip, debating whether or not I should stop. When lightning lights up the sky, the answering crack of thunder is so loud that I can feel it in my bones. Letting out a small whimper, I press on the accelerator. As I turn into the driveway, I squint through the heavy rainfall until the words on the sign become clear. Hotel Rosella. Vacancy. I sigh in relief. A hotel will have a lobby or maybe a restaurant where I can wait out the storm. If I'm lucky, the storm will pass, and I'll be back on the road just in time to meet Emily at the bed and breakfast. If I'm unlucky... Well, the sign said there was a vacancy. Emily would be disappointed... But she knows how I feel about thunderstorms. She would understand if I arrived a day late. I pull into a parking space and kill the engine. I unplug the GPS, wrap the cord, and shove the device into the center console. Grabbing my purse from the passenger seat, I slip the strap over my head. My hand goes to the door handle and, for a second, I stare at the wall of water cascading down my window unable to move. Before I can convince myself it will be safer to wait out the storm in my car, I take a deep breath and push the door open. The second I leave the car, I'm soaked. I clench my teeth and run for the large double doors at the front of the hotel. I burst through them, throwing both doors open wide and stumble inside. I paced on a smile, ready to apologize to the hotel staff for dripping all over their rosy red carpeting. But the lobby is empty. Arms wrapped around my middle, teeth chattering from the colt. I approach the front desk. Sitting on the desk next to an old-fashioned bell is a sign that states, Ring bell for service. I uncross my arms and give the bell a little tap. The bell rings out, echoing in the uncomfortable quiet of the lobby. As seconds drag on into minutes, I take in my surroundings. Behind the desk, off to one side, is a door, solid except for the stained-glass window inset into the wood. Fixed to the wall directly behind the desk is a panel of hooks. Hanging from the hooks are keys attached to which are keychains in the shape of a rose. Etched into the roses are gilded numbers. Odd. I've never been to a hotel that uses real keys before. Every hotel that I've ever been to has always used cards with magnetic strips. I reach out to ring the bell again. Hello? Is anyone here? No answer. I shake my head and turn away from the desk. I walk toward a circle of couches in the middle of the lobby and sit down. Dust plumes around me, and, coughing, I wave my hand in front of my face until the cloud settles. How long has it been since anyone sat down on one of these couches? And why hasn't anyone cleaned them in that time? The quiet of the lobby is oppressive, so I pull out my phone to wait. The lock screen lights up, the background a picture of my cat Chester, curled up on our couch at home. No messages. Not that I expected any. I swipe to unlock the phone and tap the appropriate app to check the radar. The app loads but instead of my current location, the app displays the weather for the city I left behind this morning. I drag at the screen to reload it, 
the screen goes white. The loading bar crawls forward and then stops. I dismiss the app and pull up the browser. I open a new tab and do a generic search for weather near me. The results fail to load. I glance at the top of the screen and frown. No service. Damn it, I mutter. In a place this far out, is it really surprising that there would be no service? No matter. Without service, I'll just have to rely on Wi-Fi. I tap through the settings on my phone and wait for the list to populate. I wait one second, then two, my brow furrowing in disbelief. Under networks, there's nothing to connect to. No secured networks, no guest networks, not even a rogue wireless printer. How is that possible? What kind of hotel in this day and age doesn't offer Wi-Fi? I stand, brushing at the dust clinging to the damp denim of my jeans. I stride to the front desk and ring the bell again. Hello? Again, no answer. Louder, I call out, Does anyone work here? When no one pops out of the back room wearing an apologetic smile, I stand on my tiptoes and peer over the counter. Scattered papers, yellowed with age, litter the floor. Two wooden stools lie on their sides. One of the stools is broken, with one of the legs ending just below the brace, terminating in nothing more than jagged splinters. I pull myself up further, expecting to find the missing piece. When cold, dark dread settles over me. Against the base of the desk is a large stain, almost black against the rose-red of the carpet, like a pool of spilled ink. Except somewhere in the deep animalistic part of my brain, I know it's not ink. It's blood. I back away from the desk, almost tripping over my feet in my hurry to get away, string of curses falling from my lips. Storm or no storm, I need to get out of here. Scrambling for my keys, I make my way toward the front doors. I pull at the latch, but the door catches. I pull harder and the door shakes, but doesn't open. Locked! But how? A key. There has to be a key somewhere behind the front desk, hidden in a drawer or something. All I have to do is find it. Careful to give the bloodstain a wide berth, I round the front desk. I pull open drawer after drawer, rifling through the contents, finding nothing more than pens, pencils, paper clips, and a rectangular object that I vaguely recognize as a non-electronic credit card reader. Momentarily forgetting my fright, I pick up the reader, turning it over in my hands. Haven't these been obsolete for decades now? I let the reader drop back into the drawer, sending another cloud of dust into the air. When the dust clears and I can breathe again, sitting on the desk is a key. I stare at the key, my mouth turned down in a confused frown. There wasn't anything there a minute ago, was there? I look around but the lobby is just as empty as it's been since I arrived. Eyes must be playing tricks on me, I say. Keys don't just appear out of nowhere. Curious. I put my finger through the loop of the key ring and pick up the key, holding it in front of my face. I tilt my head sideways to read the gilded script etched into the rose keychain. Jenny! With a sharp gasp, I drop the key. It clatters onto the desk before skittering off the wood and falling to the floor at my feet. I toe at it with the point of my black flat, intent on kicking it away from me. When light catches on the gilded script, gilded script that reads, two, two, three. I turn the key over with my foot. 
but the script is the same on the opposite side. Two, two, three. Shake my head, laughing a little at myself. I bend down to pick up the key and place it back on the desk. The scattered papers littering the floor crumple under my careful footsteps as I make my way to the door behind the desk. I grasp the brass knob and give it an experimental twist, more than half expecting this door to be locked as well. The knob turns, however, and I open the door an inch. Peering through the crack into pitch dark, I'm not able to see anything. So I open the door further. Light spills from the lobby into a small room, illuminating a large desk and a cracked leather chair. Like the area behind the front desk, the office is littered with debris. I take a step further into the room and freeze in place when glass crunches beneath the sole of my shoe. I look down at what must have once been a floor lamp, the shattered multicolored glass of the lampshade scattered across a carpet. I step over the bent metal pole blocking the way and go to the desk. On the desk is a large book lying open to a spread of pages near the middle. A rust-colored stain stretches across both pages, like paint splashed across canvas. More blood. What could have happened here? And how long ago did it occur? As someone who works in IT, the lack of computers doesn't escape my notice. It's possible they were stolen, but what about the accessories? The mice... The keyboards, the cords, the printers. Why take the peripherals when the true value would lie in the sensitive financial data stored in the computers themselves? No. Something tells me that there were never any computers in this hotel. Making the crime scene I've stumbled onto how old? Forty years? Fifty? If the hotel has been abandoned for that long... Then how is there still power? A mistake at the electrical company? Some kind of oversight spanning decades? Outside, thunder rumbles loud enough that the walls of the little office shake. Visions of funnel clouds rip through my mind. I imagine wind howling louder than a freight train. I see the walls shake and shake before they're torn apart. Exposing wire and wood and insulation. From a distance, I see myself standing in the middle of the room. My unprotected body shredded by shrapnel. With a strangled whimper, I drop into a crouch. My arms wrapped around my middle. I squeeze my eyes shut, bracing myself for the coming devastation. Seconds pass. The thunder trails off. Except for the jackhammer beat of my heart, the office is silent. With a curse, I let my shoulders slump and head hang forward, damp hair hanging into my face. I take a long, unsteady breath in. I let one shuddering breath out. I keep breathing until the panic recedes, until my heartbeat slows, until I'm back to myself again. Blindly, I reach out to grab the edge of the desk to pull myself back to standing. Except my hand isn't empty. I'm actually clutching something inside my closed fist. I'm clutching it so hard that the sharp edge of whatever it is presses into my palm, digging painfully into my skin. I stare at my hand, at the sliver of red visible between my fingertips and palm at the gleam of gold etched into the plastic. The key. The key from before. The key I'm certain I left on the front desk. Then how did it come to be in my hand? When did it come to be in my hand? I've lost myself during panic attacks before. I've come back to awareness huddled in corners, 
or curled into a ball beneath tables. But I didn't lose myself this time. Not completely. Not like that. At no time did I stand up, go to the front desk, take the key to room 223, and return to the office. I couldn't have. My instinct is to throw the key across the room while running in the opposite direction. To put as much space between myself and this key as physically possible. But somewhere in the rational part of my brain, I know there has to be an explanation. And what if I'm supposed to have this key? I nearly roll my eyes at the thought. But something about it feels right. Like I was drawn to this hotel for a reason. Like there's something here that I'm supposed to see. Something in room 223. That's ridiculous, I say, pulling myself up to stand, wincing at the creak in my knees after crouching for so long. I'm just some random IT specialist. What could anyone possibly have to show me in some room in an abandoned hotel in the middle of freaking nowhere? I frown at the key before shoving it into the back pocket of my jeans. Whatever happened in room 223, I don't want to know about it. I just want to find the key to the front door so I can get out of the hotel, get back to my car, and, somehow, brave the storm raging outside without having another freakout along the way. Finding nothing but generic office supplies, I clamp down on the childish urge to kick the desk. Now what? I ask the room at large. The key to room 223 burns in my back pocket. Would it really hurt to look? Yes! I say, incredulous at myself. Something happened here. Something terrible. Something equally terrible could be waiting for me inside that hotel room. Something tugs at me, however. The more I resist the thought of going to room 223, the more I can't ignore it. It becomes an itch that I can't scratch. It's the same feeling I get when I'm home, washing produce in my sink. When I know that the zucchini is clean, but I can't stop washing and rewashing it until the itch fades, and I'm finally allowed to move on to the tomato. Fine, I sigh. One quick look, and I'm going to find a way to break one of these windows, and then I'm getting out of here. I cross the room so focused on the task that I nearly trip over the broken lamp. I manage to catch myself before I can fall, doing an awkward little hop-skip across the rest of the room. When I step through the doorway, my jaw drops. The lobby has taken on a golden hue, so bright that the air itself seems to sparkle. Behind the desk, the debris is gone, almost as if it has never been. Sitting atop the two upright stools are a man and a woman, wearing matching navy blue outfits. Standing on the other side of the desk, across from the man, are a man and a woman. Just visible over the edge of the desk is a bright blonde mop of hair. A child. A family. They smile at the man behind the desk. But when the father opens his mouth to speak... No sound emerges. The woman sitting on the stool slides a key across the polished wood of the desk toward another woman with long, straight hair held back by a thick headband. The woman with the headband takes the key. She says something, but again, no sound comes out. She turns and wheels her suitcase toward an elevator on the far side of the lobby beyond the circle of couches. Sitting on one of the couches is another man, dressed in a long-sleeve button-down shirt and wide brown tie, a book open on his lap. He rolls his arm to check the watch gleaming at his wrist, sighs, and continues reading. Hello? Neither the man or woman working behind the desk turns to look at me. Instead, they turn to one another, their mouths moving as they speak without sound. I take a step, my hand extended to touch the woman on the shoulder, to get her attention. 
The man and the woman disappear. The golden hue dims back to dusty gray. The family, the father, the mother, and the child, are gone. Along with the man sitting on the sofa, the two stools lie on their sides on the floor, the leg of one broken, surrounded by scattered paper. Dried blood stains the carpet. I drop my arm, my thoughts reeling. What the hell have I just seen? Some kind of vision of the past? I take an experimental step, touching down first with the toe of my flat before slowly rolling the rest of my foot down to the floor. Nothing changes. Nothing, except... I don't have to look to know that the irregular object in the hand clenched by my side is the key. Damn it! I mutter. I said I was going, didn't I? I take a few more hesitant steps toward the elevator, before thinking better of it. The last thing I need is to get stuck in the elevator if the power goes out. That, and I've never been very comfortable in small, enclosed spaces. The lobby branches off in two directions, with hallways leading to hotel rooms on either side. Reasoning that the hotel should have a stairwell on either side of the building, I head to the left, the hallway closest to the front desk. At first... Nothing seems out of the ordinary. On either side of the hallway, standing at regular intervals, are doors. Beside each door is a rose-shaped plaque with a gilded number. Rose-red carpet stretches the length of the hallway. Scattered outside door 118 are dishes, the remains of decades-old room service, long rotted away. The wall to my left is stained with a spray of rusty red, so dark that it almost looks brown. More blood. I tear my eyes away from the wall and hurry on. On the opposite side of the hallway, three parallel lines have been gouged into the wall. Each of the gashes is about a foot in length, with ragged edges. My immediate thought is that the wall has been slashed by the claws of a wild animal. But what kind of animal could do something like that? I shake my head, clearing it of the image trying to form. The less I allow myself to think about it, the better. The faster I get to the second floor, to room 223, the better. I half jog the rest of the length of the hallway. When I turn the corner... The way is blocked not by a stairwell, but by a door. Water runs in steady rivulets down the glass. A way out? With a sigh of relief, I drop the key to room 223. I press against the latch and the door flies open, pulled out of my grasp by a strong gust of wind. Bracing myself, I dash into the storm. I stumble. The cement beneath my feet dry as bone. I look up, squinting against the glare of the sun. One wispy white cloud hangs in an otherwise perfect blue sky. Movement catches a corner of my vision, and I turn, just as a young man wearing swim trunks takes a running leap and cannonballs into sparkling water with a soundless splash. He rockets back to the surface shaking his head wildly, spraying water everywhere. Lying in identical plastic chairs beside the pool are two young women, one wearing a green and yellow floral one-piece, the other wearing a solid orange bikini. They share a look, their expressions equal parts charmed and annoyed. The woman wearing the bikini leans over the arm of her chair to whisper something behind her hand at the woman in the one-piece, By the way she steals exaggerated glances at the man in the pool, it's clear she means for the man to hear her. The woman in the one-piece giggles. With a lingering smile, she rolls to lie on her front, her face turned to the side, her eyes closed. The young man swims to the edge of the pool and folds his arms over the side, resting his chin on his arm.
The corners of his eyes crinkle as he smiles, leaving the young man to chat soundlessly with the woman in the bikini. I sweep my gaze over the area, searching for an exit. My heart sinks. Anywhere else, in any other hotel in the world, the pool would be enclosed by some kind of low fencing. The kind with wide-set bars meant less for security and more to allow outsiders to see inside, to entice potential guests with the gentle lapping of cool water and the promise of rest and relaxation, easily jumpable fencing. But this is not anywhere else. And, unlike every other hotel in the world, this pool is surrounded on all sides by bushes. Red rose bushes, all in full bloom. I start toward the rose bushes, looking for some kind of gate. There has to be some kind of gate. When the world shifts, the young women are gone, their chairs upturned their towels strewn across the concrete. The young man floats face down in the pool, drifting in a rapidly expanding cloud of bright crimson. I scream, falling backward. Pain shoots up my arms as I jar my wrist against the unforgiving concrete. Heavy rain falls, drenching me in an instant. Beyond the hedge of roses, lightning flashes. Shooting glances at the now-empty pool, I pick myself up. I run toward the rose bushes, overgrown, but still miraculously in bloom. My thin-soled flats provide little traction, and I slip. I wheel my arms, find my balance, and keep running. A curtain of wet hair hangs into my face, and I push it away to examine the roses. Each bush is impossibly high and impassably thick. I reach in to part the foliage, to see how far I'd have to go to reach the other side. I jump back with a yelp of pain. Blood wells up from a dozen or so scratches, only to be washed away by the rain as soon as it appears. Lightning arcs across the sky, and I shriek at the answering boom of thunder. I whirl around to run for the door, back to the relative safety of the hotel. When my eyes lock onto the shadow of a person on the other side of the glass, they stand there motionless for the space of a breath before sweeping away. Hey! I shout, my voice lost in the fury of the storm. Wait! I sprint the rest of the way to the door, slipping and sliding across the wet concrete. I wrench at the handle and, without bothering to wrestle the door closed behind me, I duck inside and turn the corner leading back into the hallway. No sign of the figure. Not even a second set of footprints in the dust beside mine. Did I imagine it? Or was there really someone there? Someone watching me? behind me. The door to the pool slams shut. I jump at the sound, then, dread sinking into the pit of my stomach, sprint back to the door. Locked! Eyes burning with fear and frustration. I press my weight against the door over and over again, but the door only rattles against the bolt. Please! I say, my voice thick with unshed tears. Please let me out! I don't know whether I expected some kind of answer, but when no response comes, I let my head thunk against the glass and rest it there, resisting the urge to slide to the carpet in a miserable heap. A single tear rolls down my cheek, and I huff in annoyance. I bring my hand up to brush it away, frown at my clenched fist. Inside it is the key to room 223. Of course, I say with a defeated sigh. I push myself away from the door and head back to the lobby. 
I stride past the circle of couches and into the hallway to the right. I keep my eyes on my feet, unwilling to catch more than a glimpse of long-dried blood staining the walls and carpet, unwilling to catalogue the gouges in the walls. I round the corner at the end of the hall and let out a breath I didn't realize I was holding. Not a stairwell, but stairs carpeted with the same rose-red carpeting as the rest of the hotel, the once glossy banister dulled by decades of grime. Stepping onto the first stair kicks up a cloud of dust. I wrinkle my nose, and, once the worst of the dust has dispersed, hold my breath as I bound up the rest of the stairs. Once I reach the second floor, I count down the gilded numbers on the rose-shaped plaques as I pass, until, finally, I come to room 223. The key slides into the slot, and the door unlocks with a soft click. I turn the knob, and, not knowing what to expect after everything else I've seen, inch the door open, and hold it there with my outstretched fingertips. The room itself looks much like every other hotel room I've ever been in. A large bed pushed against the far wall. A table on each side. Sitting on the tables are reading lamps, an old-fashioned cord phone, pads of paper, and pens. Opposite the bed are a writing desk and chair. Arranged in front of the large window are two low chairs with a small table set between them. The similarities end with the banner hanging across the heavy curtains covering the window. The banner upon which, smeared like a child's finger painting, are jagged rust-colored letters spelling out the words, Welcome home, Jenny. I let the door slam closed. This time, I rear back and, with a snap of my arm, Throw the key to room 223. I don't wait for the key to land. I sprint through the hallway, fear and adrenaline pushing me to go faster. My thoughts come to me in fragments that I have to work to complete. Blood. The banner was written with blood. The banner was written with blood and it knew my name. The blood was dry. I only looked for a second, but the blood was dry. Meaning what? That the banner was made long ago? Impossible. If not for the storm, I never would have stopped at this hotel. How could anyone have predicted something like that so far in advance? And yet, it was my name written in dried blood across the banner. Using the wall for support, my hand leaving a trail in the dust, I race down the stairs. I keep running until I reach the lobby. I turn in a circle sweeping my gaze over the room, looking for something, anything I can use to help me escape. I catch a glimpse of one of the stools lying behind the desk. I stride over to it and pick it up, testing its weight. I make a small, pleased sound and set the stool down. I skim the numbered keychains of the keys hanging on the panel behind the desk. Finding one belonging to a room on the first floor, I take the key from its hook. Grabbing the stool by its circular seat, I drag it behind me into the hallway on the left. I stop before the door to room 107 and slip the key into the lock. The door opens on squealing hinges. I wince, but not allowing myself to stop and think, afraid that I'll lose my nerve and my momentum. I stride forward, dragging the stool into the room. By the time the door slips shut behind me, I falter. Whatever happened at the hotel, whatever terrible thing happened, it happened inside this room as well. The bed is unmade, the sheets rumpled, the comforter lying in a heap on the floor. Beside the bed, one of the lamps dangles by its cord over the side of the table. The desk has been pulled away from the wall, while the chair lies on its side by the foot of the bed. Cotton stuffing spills out of a tear in one of the low chairs by the window. Draped over the second chair and table are the tattered remains of the curtains. 
the rod wrenched free from the wall, mangled brackets and all. I try not to let my eyes linger on the blood, but there's just so much of it. The walls are painted with it. It's soaked into the sheets, the pillows, the carpet. It's spilled across the surface of the desk. The curtains, already a deep red, are dyed nearly black with it. Outside, lightning flashes, casting the room into a riot of light and shadow. Thunder rumbles, and instead of shrinking in panic, I pick up the stool and march toward the window. I close my eyes and swing the stool as hard as I can at the glass. With an echoing crack, the stool splinters in my hands. The window vibrates in its frame, but it doesn't shatter. I stand with my arms outstretched, staring at the ruined stool. I drag my eyes to the window, not even a scratch. The stool clatters to the floor. My vision blurs, and I blink back hot, frantic, furious tears. I'm trapped. No, I say, barely above a whisper. Then louder, wilder, my voice on the edge of hysteria. No, no, no! I can't be trapped here. I can't. I'm supposed to be on vacation. I'm supposed to. I haven't seen Emily in a year. She's going to get to the bed and breakfast, and I, I have to meet her there. She'll be so worried. I can't. I can't do that to her. I just can't. I force myself to breathe. In and out. In and out. Desperate to clear my mind. There has to be a way out of here. And I won't be able to find it if I give in to the panic clawing at the back of my throat. I turn, ready to go back to the lobby. Ready to grab fistfuls of keys. Ready to check every single room if I have to. Except the light has taken on a golden hue. The furniture is immaculate. The blood is gone. A curly-haired woman sprawls across the bed on her stomach. One leg kicked in the air, paging through a magazine. She looks up and smiles as a barrel-chested man approaches, wearing a button-down shirt with the sleeves pushed up, exposing his bare forearms and a pair of pressed khaki slacks. Grinning, the man lies down beside the woman. He points at the magazine and speaks, his mouth moving without sound. He looks sidelong at the woman, still grinning. The woman gives an exaggerated roll of her eyes and lightly smacks his hand away from the magazine. The man laughs and ducks his head, stealing a kiss. I turn away, not wanting to see this. Not this sweet private moment, not what comes after. I move towards the door, but the world shifts again. The man stands at the door, pressing his ear to the wood, as the woman wrings her hands and hovers nearby. Eyes wide, dark with fear, the man waves the woman away. He points across the room, clearly telling the woman to go, to hide. The woman shakes her head, her eyes bright with tears. But then she goes, huddling in the narrow space between the bedside table and the wall. The man inches the door open. He peers through the crack into the hallway. Then, without warning, he rears back. He tries to shut the door, but all at once the door burst open, and something large and dark and terrible crashes into the man. He cries out as clawed feet rip into his shoulders, as the thing, the horrible, bat-like thing, lifts him into the air. The man kicks out, scrambling for purchase. He swings at the creature, his fist thudding uselessly against the creature's thick, fur-covered body. The creature wrinkles its snout and hurls the man across the room. He crashes into the wall and crumples to the floor inches away from the cowering woman. The woman screams. She tries to reach out to the man, but he shakes his head, wincing, using the wall as support. The man pushes himself to standing. He places himself between the woman and the creature and draws himself up to his full height, as if daring the creature to approach. 
the creature lands on the floor. Using its clawed feet and the hooked claws at the top of its leathery wings, the creature crawls forward. One wing catches on the leg of the chair, and the creature thrashes, knocking the desk away from the wall. The chair lands on its side near the end of the bed. With the creature distracted and the path to the door now clear, I spring into a run. I slam into the door and scrabble at the handle. I pull the door open, but before I can throw myself across the threshold, I turn back to look at the man and woman. I stare hard at their terrified faces, unable to do anything more than memorize their features in what are undoubtedly their last moments. The creature pauses in its slow crawl. It lifts its head, pointed ears twitching with interest. It sniffs at the air before turning its head, squinting beady onyx eyes before fixing on my direction. The creature shuffles along the carpet, and, with a jolt of fear, I realize the creature is trying to turn around. The creature can see me, and I need to move, need to run, but I'm bolted to the spot. The creature shuffles along the carpet, and, with a jolt of fear, I realize the creature is trying to turn around. The creature can see me, and I need to move, need to run, but I'm bolted to the spot. Behind the creature, the man's face twists with confusion. He shouts something at the creature, drawing its attention back to himself. Gratitude washes through me, weighted by grief. I stumble backwards out of the hotel room and don't stop until my back hits the wall opposite room 107. The door swings shut, and, in the echoing quiet of the hallway, the click of the lock is almost deafening. Leaning my head back against the wall, I close my eyes and let out a shuddering breath. What in the hell was that thing? And how, if the events that the hotel has been showing me occurred in the past, could the creature see me? I shake my head. I don't want to know the answers to those questions. Numb, wooden, and more exhausted than I've ever been in my life. I push myself away from the wall. I open my eyes and stagger in the direction of the lobby. Movement catches my eye, and I freeze, convinced that the figure making its way down the far hallway towards the stairs is the creature. But the figure walks on two legs, shaped not like a monstrous bat, but like a human being. The figure from before? The one I thought I saw watching me through the door at the pool? Breaking into a sprint, I shout, Stop! Without breaking their stride, the figure continues walking. By the time I reach the lobby, the figure turns a corner, out of sight. Desperate not to lose them, I push myself to run faster, crossing through the lobby and flying down the hallway to the right. I grab the wall to swing myself around the corner, and, gripping the banister, I lever myself up the stairs, taking the steps two at a time, pausing only long enough to peer down each floor to look for the figure. My lungs burn by the time I reach the top, but I can't stop. I turn the corner and watch as the figure disappears into a room. I try to call out, to tell the figure to wait, but the words get caught in my throat as I suck in huge lungfuls of air. I clutch at a stitch in my side and continue on, unable to manage anything faster than an unsteady jog. I try every door I pass, wiggling handles until I find one that's unlocked. Beside the door is a usual rose-shaped plaque, but instead of a room number, it reads conference room. I slip inside and pause, waiting for my eyes to adjust to the dim light struggling through the rain-streaked windows lining the far wall. A long table, draped in a blood-soaked cloth, sits in the center of the room. A circle of upended chairs surrounds the table. The room is bathed in long-dried blood. The walls the carpet. Even the ceiling are coated with it. 
Whatever happened here, it was worse than what happened in room 107. Beyond the windows, lightning flashes. I jump, scared not by the following crack of thunder, but by a boy of maybe 15 or 16 years old, standing near the head of the table. Blood spills from a gaping open wound, splitting the pale column of his throat, staining the front of a red and blue striped polo shirt. Messy dark brown hair falls over his forehead, hanging into blank black eyes. Hello? I say, voice thick with fear. The boy doesn't answer. Who... Who are you? Fresh blood oozes from his wound, but the boy doesn't speak. Did the monster... Did it get to you too? Did it... Did it hurt you? I make an abortive gesture at my throat. The boy continues to stare for so long that I wonder if he can hear me. Then... He gives a slow shake of his head. If not the creature, then what? I open my mouth. The question on the tip of my tongue. When the boy steps back, away from the table, his feet bare against the carpet. He lifts a pale hand and points. I follow the line of his finger, blinded for a moment by the glittering golden sun streaming in through the windows. Draped upon the conference table is a pristine white sheet. Several figures sit in the chairs arranged in a circle around the table. Their features shrouded by the hoods of crimson cloaks pulled low over their faces. I look at the boy, but he continues to point. I turn again in time for two men to enter the room, carrying the boy between them. He hangs limp in their arms, his bare feet dragging along the floor. His head lulls, bearing his uninjured throat. The boy barely puts up a struggle as the two men lay him on the table. His eyes flutter as he fights to keep them open. The two men take the cloak stowed beneath unoccupied chairs and shrug them on, pulling the hoods over their heads. They sit down, leaving only the chair at the head of the table empty. Another man enters the room. He's an older man with white stubble dusting his face and jaw, dressed in a well-tailored suit. He strides toward the head of the room, patting the backs and squeezing the shoulders of the cloaked figures as he passes. He smiles a grandfatherly smile. The two cloaked figures on either side of the older man stand. As one, they set a crimson cloak across his shoulders. They bow to the man and return to their seats. The older man spreads his hands wide, like a preacher addressing his flock and grins. He speaks, his mouth moving with no sound. Then, from the folds of his cloak, he reveals a large knife, the silver blade shining in the golden light. He approaches the table, and the boy, realizing the danger that he's in, tries to roll off the table. Several hands catch the boy's arms and legs, holding him down. The older man nods his thanks and raises a hand holding the knife into the air. I turn to face the wall, screwing my eyes closed. A high-pitched whine fills my ears, and it takes a moment to realize that the sound belongs to me. I startle at the barely-there brush of fingers against my arm. I open my eyes to find the blood-stained boy beside me. His expression is blank. There's a tightness around his dark eyes that I interpret as an apology. I'm sorry that happened to you. I say, really, truly sorry. The boy points again. 
and reluctantly. I turn to face the boy lying dead on the table. The older man paces the room, stealing glances at the boy's body as he goes. The figures sitting around the table stare at the corpse, their gazes never wavering. Minutes pass, and the expression on the older man's face turns from expectant to impatient to something dark and angry and almost betrayed. I shift, but the bloodstained boy's fingers brush against my wrist, urging me to watch. Another minute passes, and the shrouded figures turn from the body on the table to watch the older man as he speaks. He waves his arms in the air, one hand still gripping the knife, his eyes wild. On the table, the body of the boy twitches, then goes ramrod straight. His back arches impossibly high, and then he collapses again. A slow smile spreads across the older man's features. He speaks again, but this time he appears to be addressing the boy on the table. The boy on the table sits up, blood dribbling from the wound at his throat. He looks around the room at the cloaked figures, at the older man standing at the front of the room, at the slow trickle of blood falling from the knife used to kill him. The boy closes his eyes. He clenches pale fists. And in the corners of the room, shadows coalesce, forming two large, bat-like creatures. Leathery wings beat once, twice, three times before the creatures dive toward the table, toward the cloaked figures already scrambling to get away. Please, I say to the boy standing beside me. Enough. That's enough. The boy nods, and the golden hue fades back to gray, leaving us alone again in the present. It was you, I say. You made those things. The creatures that killed everyone in the hotel. The corners of the boy's mouth turned down in a frown. You didn't mean it, though, did you? You only wanted to hurt the people that hurt you. The boy nods. Are you... Are you the one that brought me here? The boy points at my hand. I hold up the key to room 223, dangling the key ring from my thumb and forefinger. As I watch, the number morphs into flowing golden script. Jenny... I give a sad shake of my head. I can't stay. The boy opens his mouth, but all that comes out is a dry rattle of breath. I'm sorry, I continue. I really am. But there are people out there waiting for me. People who will be worried if I disappear. The expression in the boy's black eyes turns distraught. I bet there are people out there who worried about you when you disappeared, too. I bet they really miss you. What if... What if we both let this place go? Wouldn't that... Wouldn't that be better? The boy's eyes narrow, but I hold his gaze, barely daring to breathe. A minute passes, and the boy's lips turn up in a slight smile. He closes his eyes and fades into nothing. Thank you, I tell the empty room. I hope you're not alone anymore. I exit the conference room and hurry down the stairs to the first floor, through the hallway, and back to the lobby. I pause before the entrance before giving the latch an experimental pull. The door opens. My knees weak with relief. I stumble through the door. Within seconds, I'm soaked again, but I barely register the ice-cold sting of the rain as I dash across the parking lot. Digging through my purse, I pull out my keys. With a click of the fob, I unlock the car and climb inside. I buckle my seatbelt, shove the key into the ignition, and throw the car into reverse. 
as I pull out of the parking lot and onto the highway. I watch in the rearview mirror as Hotel Rosella disappears, fading into nothingness as if it were never there. I smile and continue driving, my windshield wipers thumping rhythmically, certain of only one thing. Next time, I'm getting on the damn plane. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, kiddies. So you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs>